Amen. Well, as they're finding their seats, why don't we turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We are going to be looking at verses 8 through 15 today. Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. this. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That sends our reading of God's irrefutable word. May all who hear it be given the wisdom and the spirit that come from above. When we think about the the Reformation, we typically think about Martin Luther, right? And yet, before Martin Luther, there was a man named John Huss. Huss was one of the great men of the faith, one who, who helped lay the foundation of the Reformation. For, for he preached that, that the church must listen to Scripture alone and that, that the Pope was not infallible. And yet, because he stood for the truth, he was, he was eventually defrocked and, uh, and ended up dying a martyr's death. In fact, he was tricked into going to this council in, in Constance where, where he was promised safe passage as well as a platform where he could debate, debate his, his viewpoints. And yet, when he arrived, he, he was immediately arrested and threatened with death unless he recanted. He would not be given a platform, nor would his arguments be heard, for he was already deemed a heretic in the eyes of Rome. Yet Huss, John Huss, would not recant, for for he was a man of conviction, and he knew that he was on the side of the Lord. Listen to this account of his dying day. On, On July 6, 1415, he was taken to the cathedral, dressed in his priestly garments and stripped of them one by one. He refused one last chance to recant at the stake where he prayed, Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. He was heard reciting the Psalms as the flames engulfed him. He continued to sing until finally the flames burned his face though his lips continued to move until he breathed his last. 
Now, how, how can a man be reciting psalms and singing hymns when being engulfed in flames? How, how can he have such peace and exude such confidence while suffering this agonizing death? It is because he knew the truth of the gospel, the truth about his Savior. And, and in that truth comes a confident peace that cannot be taken away. In our passage today, we get to meet another man who exuded a confident peace, so the, the world, his world, seemed to be falling apart. It was just last week that Luke introduced us to Stephen, right? He, he was one of those seven Jews that, whom the apostles appoint, appointed to oversee the daily distribution of the food. And if you recall, it, it, it was, if you remember, it was the Hellenists, the, the Jews who were born outside of Israel, who, who had made the complaint against the Hebrews, Jews born within Israel. And the reason they were making this complaint was because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And, and so in an effort to bring unity within the church, the apostles decided to give total control of this ministry over to the Hellenists. And so seven good men were, were chosen, one of whom was Stephen. And it was a Stephen who was given the position of promise, prominence in the, in the list, in Luke's list, right? He, he was the first one mentioned on that list. And, and Luke even tells us a little bit about him. He, he says that he was a man full of faith and, and of the Holy Spirit. This leads us to today where, where Stephen will play an important role in God's kingdom. For, for it is in this story that, that Luke demonstrates to us that this Hellenistic Jew did far more than just pass out bread. For he was also a proclaimer of the gospel message. He was an evangelist of Jesus Christ. And it is through him that we discover an important message. And that message is this. In Christ... You have been given a wisdom from the Holy Spirit that cannot be withstood by earthly powers. In Christ, you have been given a wisdom from the Holy Spirit that cannot be withstood by earthly powers. And yet, as we'll soon see, these earthly powers will vehemently oppose such wisdom. Look at, look at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So here we once again see Luke's praise of this man, do we not? You know, before Luke told us that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And now here he's being described as full of grace and power. Being full of grace speaks to the type of blessing that, that, that was upon this man, right? God was with Stephen in a special, special way. And this was demonstrated in the fact that he was full of power, right? In other words, the Holy Spirit had gifted this man in a way that was palpable. Now, now isn't this how, how you would like to be described? Full of grace and power? <clears throat> I know I would. 
to, to have the blessing of God upon myself, to have God's gifting that I might be used for, for his glory. As Christians, this should be our desire for, for the Holy Spirit to, to be with us and to, and to use us to grow God's kingdom. This is who Stephen was. He was a man of grace, full of grace and power. One whose life was directed by the Holy Spirit. And, and, and the gifts that God had given to him, they were made manifest. And what does Luke tell us? In these signs and wonders that he performed. Now Luke doesn't tell us what those signs and wonders were. But, but I have to imagine that they were on par with the apostles. That he was healing people. That he was casting out demons. And yet probably the, the greatest gift that this Stephen had been given was, was a wisdom from the Holy Spirit. For he was a persuasive evangelist. A, a man who, who could not be refuted. Look, look at our next two verses. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Here we see the, the, the type of ministry that was taking place by this Stephen as he was confronted by these other men from these synagogues. They, they were disputing with Stephen concerning the message that he was proclaiming. And what was that message? The message of Jesus Christ, right? He, he was proclaiming the, the very name that had been banned by the Sanhedrin. Now, now, it's worthy to note that this is an example of an evangelistic effort by someone who was not an apostle, right? Thus far in the book of Acts, every time we've seen the gospel being proclaimed, it has come from the mouths of the apostles, right? Mainly from Peter. But now we have this Stephen, and he was proclaiming Christ to the lost. Think about who this Stephen was. And the role that he had within the church. He was one of the seven, right? One of those who was put in charge of the distribution of food. And one of the reasons they had placed him in that role was so that the apostles could focus on the ministry of the word. Do you remember that? And yet now here it has become apparent that, that even though Stephen had a very different role than these apostles... He, he still managed to set aside time to proclaim Jesus to an unbelieving world. Now, now, this food ministry that he was doing was important. And I'm sure if he wanted to, it could have consumed him. In fact, he could have used it as an excuse, right? An excuse to avoid evangelistic efforts altogether. I, I'm just too busy serving the Lord. I serve him in other ways. Evangelism just isn't my calling, right? And really, it's all about my good deeds. I mean, they speak louder than my voice ever could. 
I, I've seen this excuse used before. People claiming that it is through their charitable acts, their good deeds, that, that they are being a gospel witness. That this is the way that God has chosen to use them. And yet the problem is they, they never proclaim Jesus to anyone. Yes, they have their good deeds, but, but those good deeds hold no gospel weight. Listen, if there was anyone who could have used this excuse, it would have been Stephen, right? And yet he's the counter to that argument. In fact, he was sharing the gospel so much that, that the unbelievers felt that they needed to debate him. Here's the thing. Charitable acts and, and good deeds, they, while they're, they're good to do, they do not have primacy over the ministry of the word. And if they are done outside of the proclamation of the gospel, then they really have no lasting value. I mean, a Muslim can give food to the poor, right? An atheist can serve at a, at a food kitchen. But only a Christian can bring meaning to those good deeds. And that meaning comes through the proclamation of the gospel. By, by someone opening their mouths and declaring that Jesus is Lord. Dear friends, do you understand that, that evangelism is to be a part of every Christian's life? Not just a few. It doesn't matter your gifting. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter what role you have in the church. And it doesn't even matter if you are a new believer. Jesus has called you to be his witness. Just, just the other day, one, one of the, the young girls who goes to our youth group asked us to pray for her mom. And, and do you know why she asked us to pray for her mom? Because she has begun to speak to her mom about Jesus. She, she's telling her all about the things that she's been learning in the Bible. Now, now, this girl is very, very young in the faith. I mean, when it comes to her biblical knowledge, it's, it, it's not that deep yet. But she gets it, you know? She understands that, that this is a message that needs to be shared. It needs to be proclaimed. That without Jesus, the one whom she loves will be lost. She got it. And Stephen got it as well. Even though his role was to, to, to pass out food, his, his passion was for his Lord and Savior. It was to declare Jesus to those whom he loved. Let's, let's consider the message that he, he preached for a moment. What was it that Stephen proclaimed? Well, that Jesus is the Messiah, right? That, that when he died on the cross, he, he, he became that single atoning sacrifice that can truly pay the penalty for our sins. And that after three days, he, he rose from the dead, bringing victory and eternal life to all those who will turn from their sins and trust in him. And now that he has ascended into heaven, he sits at the right hand of the Father.
And it is from there that he rules from above as our king. And so salvation can only be found in him. And yet there will come a day when when he will judge both the living and the dead. And those who trust in the things of this world, they will find themselves cast into the eternal flames. But for those who have repentant faith in him, repentant faith in Jesus Christ, they will find that their sins have been washed away, that they have been cleansed and have been welcomed into God's presence where they will spend eternity with their king. I mean, this is the message of Jesus, right? And this was the message that Stephen was preaching. Now now I say all this, not, not only because it is good for you to hear, but also because it has implications to the accusations that Stephen's opponents were bringing. And yet before we go there, let's, let's answer the question, who were these opponents? Who, who was trying to dispute with Stephen in the first place? And why? Well, what does Luke tell us? They, they, they were those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia. Now, now, it's unclear from the grammar here how many synagogues Luke is referring to. It could be just one or it could be many. Uh, but, that's, but that's beside the point. The, the point was that these opponents of Stephen were Hellenistic Jews, right? They were the ones who were debating, from, debating him. They, they were from Jews that were born outside of Israel, just as Stephen was, and who have come back to live in Jerusalem. And so this was a a different crowd than we have seen in the past, right? I mean, with the apostles, it has always been the Sadducees and and the chief priests, right? Those those were the enemies who were making a big stink. And yet here we see the Hellenists. Now, why would that be the case? Well, what's different? Stephen's different, right? Because the people to whom Stephen was preaching the gospel was a whole different crowd. He he wasn't going to the temple to preach, but to someplace else. Here's what's going on here. Luke is making it known that Stephen was attending these Hellenistic synagogues, or one Hellenistic synagogue at least. And this should come as no surprise to us, right? Because many Christians at that time still attended synagogues. Here's what you need to understand. These these synagogues were as much the lifeblood of Judaism as the temple was. And they were were more than just houses of worship. For for a synagogue had many purposes. Yes, there was a teaching of God's word. But, but there was also, it was a place where community issues were addressed and discussed. It, there were places where, where justice could be met out as the, as the elders would settle local disputes. They, they were places where charitable goods could be both donated and, and, and distributed. 
And they were places where Jewish parents would send their children in order to be educated. And though the synagogues were controlled mostly by the scribes and the Pharisees, those who attended the synagogues were from a variety of Jewish sects, including the Christians. Yes, at that time, Christianity was seen as a Jewish sect. And that's the thing. These these early Christians, I mean, who were they? They they were all Jews, right? And, And they didn't stop seeing themselves as Jews just because they now believed in Jesus. They were just Jews who had recognized the arrival of their Messiah and were now under a new covenant. And so Stephen would have been attending a local synagogue. And because he was a Hellenistic Jew, he would have attended a synagogue filled with other Hellenistic Jews. And guess what? When he was there, what was he doing? He was proclaiming the gospel. And why wouldn't he? For these were his friends. These were his family. And he would have loved nothing more than to see their faces in God's kingdom. Bottom line, there were many, many Hellenistic Jews who were now converting to Christianity because of men like Stephen. And yet this provoked a strong reaction from these other Greek-speaking Jews. And that's why we see this vigorous debate, right? The opponents of Stephen, they wanted to disprove the gospel, that Jesus is not the Messiah. That Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That Jesus isn't sitting at the right hand of the Father. And yet, because of the wisdom that God had given to Stephen, and because he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he was able to shut down their arguments with relative ease. And why could he do this? Well, because the truth was on Stephen's side, right? He, he had the Old Testament prophecies. He had the eyewitness accounts that could not be refuted. He had the witness of the Holy Spirit, right, as he was performing signs and wonders. And you, my friends, you have the same message as Stephen did. Listen, when when, when you are proclaiming the message of Christ, you are proclaiming a message that, that cannot be disproved. There is no argument in this universe that can withstand the gospel. And there is no case that can be brought against it. And that's because it is the truth. And the truth is irrefutable. And so we see the opponents of Stephen having a hard time refuting him, right? Because they really didn't have a leg to stand on. And so what did they do instead? They resorted to lies and to slander. Look at at verses 11 through 14. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. It it should really come as no surprise when the opponents of Christ use lies and intimidation and smear campaigns to destroy their enemies. When Luke says that they stirred up the people, what he's essentially saying is that they formed a mob, right? Basically, this group took Stephen by force and presented charges of blasphemy to the Sanhedrin. And they set up these false witnesses at this trial in order to solidify their case. In the end, they they had accused Stephen of speaking against the temple and against the law of God. And in their eyes, this was blasphemy and punishable by death. Does this remind you of anything? Isn't this the exact same tactics that they used against our Lord? Bringing in false witnesses with trumped-up charges? Look at Mark chapter 14, verses 55 through 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And so, and some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. You see, just as they did with Jesus, they they are now doing with Jesus' servant. And that's because they can't find fault with Jesus' servant or with the message that he preached. And so they came up with these false accusations, hoping to best their foe. And, And what were these charges? That he spoke against the holy place and the law saying that Jesus of Nazareth was going to destroy the temple and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, now as we consider these things, there, there are three questions that I hope to answer regarding this matter. One, did Jesus really say that he would destroy the temple and change the law of Moses? Two, if he did then was Stephen proclaiming the same message when he was sharing the gospel in these synagogues? And finally, three. If the answer is yes to both of those first two questions, then why does Luke call these accusers of Stephen false witnesses? In what sense are they false? Let's start with question one. Did Jesus really say that he would destroy the temple and change the law of Moses? Look at, look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Here we see Jesus prophesying the destruction of the temple, right? He said that not one stone will be left upon another. And while this doesn't clearly express that it would be Jesus who would destroy the temple, 
This is how his disciples interpreted his words. Take, take a look at the very next verse. Look at, look at verse 3 where we see the disciples asking Jesus specifically about this prophecy. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, now there are two questions that the disciples are asking here. One, they wanted to know when the temple would be destroyed. And two, they wanted to know the sign of Jesus' coming and of the end of the age. And so they wanted to know the timing, and they wanted to know the sign leading up to this event. Now, it's really the second question that clarifies things for us. For, for in this question are the assumptions of the disciples. What, what did the disciples mean when, when they spoke of Jesus coming and of the end of the age? Well, let's deal with the term coming first. This, this word coming is an Old Testament reference to God's judgment. It's found in, in numerous passages. For example, look at, look at Psalm 50, verses 3 through 6. It says this, Our God comes. He does not keep silent. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Or how about Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2? Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them, through the years of all generations. And there are more verses just like these, where the coming of the Lord meant, meant judgment and wrath. And in our passage from Matthew, the disciples interpret the destruction of the temple as Jesus' coming, as Jesus' wrath. And moreover, Jesus, he doesn't dissuade their thinking, rather he reinforces it in his Olivet Discourse. For he speaks of tribulations and great signs and destruction. And what's more, he, he claimed that all of these things would fall upon that generation. Look at, look at Matthew 24, verse 34. Jesus said this, Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. In other words, Jesus was claiming that the destruction of the temple would be his judgment and that it would happen soon. Within a generation. And we know this to be accurate. For less than 40 years later, Jerusalem would be sacked and the temple would be torn down. But what about the second part of the disciples' question? What about the end of the age? What did they, what did they mean when they asked about that? 
Well, actually, that's pretty simple to answer. For when the temple was destroyed, it truly did signal an end of an age, did it not? For it was the end of the temple sacrifices and the priestly ministry under the old covenant. No longer could the Jews look to the blood of bulls and goats for forgiveness. Rather, they'd have to look somewhere else. And this speaks to the change in the customs of Moses, does it not? These things that men, these men accused Stephen of saying. For it was through Moses that these sacrificial rites were first given. And yet because of Christ, because of Jesus, they're no longer needed. For it is now through his blood that forgiveness can be found. Bottom line, Jesus did teach that he was going to bring an end to the temple and that its destruction would happen within a generation. And we know that it is through his sacrifice that the customs of Moses had been changed as the people of God no longer needed to look to these animal sacrifices. This then leads us to the second question, right? Was Stephen proclaiming the same message as Jesus when he was sharing the gospel in these synagogues? And I would argue yes. In fact, I, I would guess that Stephen, one of Stephen's talking points was, was the little time that these men had to repent. For Stephen knew that within a generation, Jesus would come in judgment upon the temple, upon Jerusalem. Now, now this is jumping ahead a, a little bit, but look, look at Acts chapter 7, verses 47 through 51. Here, here we see Stephen defending his claims about the temple. This is what he said. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Here, Stephen was given his reasoning as to why the temple had become obsolete, right? You see, the temple was, it was only built in the first place as a way for God to condescend to his people. I mean, you cannot truly build a house for God. That, that's idiotic, right? And yet when Jesus came, God truly did tabernacle with his people, right? He dwelt with us. And when Jesus was nailed to that cross, when he died for the sins of his people, that meant that that temple no longer had a purpose. There was no need for it anymore. No need for those animal sacrifices. And this is why Jesus would ultimately destroy it. For it had now become an object of idolatry. You see, to continue these sacrificial rituals was a blatant denial of their Savior. Every day that that temple stood, it stood as a symbol of the rejection of Jesus, who is that final sacrifice that is once for all. 
And so, yes, my guess is, is that Stephen was warning his friends, warning his family to repent of their sins and to turn towards Jesus for forgiveness. And to do so before the judgment of Christ would come upon the temple and upon the city of Jerusalem. But if this was the case, if, if Jesus taught this and if Stephen taught this, then why does Luke call his accusers false witnesses? In what sense are they false? These men were false because they were twisting Stephen's words, making it seem that, that Stephen was against God's law. I mean, what did they say? This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. Let me explain. What... You see, what Stephen was arguing for was that the law had been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. That these sacrifices were no longer necessary because, because Jesus had fulfilled it, right? And yet what these men were proclaiming was that Stephen wanted to abolish God's law by going away from that sacrificial system. And so they were false in the sense that they, they were twisting the meaning of Stephen's words. Stephen saw the law as good and fulfilled in Christ, but his accusers claimed that he, he, he wanted the law of God to be abolished. Again, I can't help but to think that, that just as they attacked Stephen, they, they, they attacked Jesus the same way, right? Look, look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Here we see Jesus dealing with much of the same criticism. Jesus said this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so Jesus clarifies that, that he is not against God's law. Rather, he is a fulfillment of God's law. And this is what Stephen was arguing for as well. And it was this argument that landed him in hot water, right? But why? Why would this type of argument land Stephen in hot water? Because his adversaries could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit which with, with which he was speaking, right? And thus they had to resort in this forceful arrest, as well as these trumped-up charges of blasphemy. And yet through it all, we see both the wisdom of God and the presence of his spirit in the life of this man named Stephen. Look at our last verse. Look at verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. His face was like the face of an angel. As all these accusations were being thrown his way, his face was like the face of an angel. Now, what does Luke mean by this? Honestly, I don't know, right? It's the only time we see something like this referenced in Scripture. My, my, my guess is maybe he was so filled with the Holy Spirit that he could see it. Like, just like how Moses' face glowed when he had been in the presence of God, perhaps Stephen's face was glowing. I don't know. But somehow it had become apparent to everyone in that room that God was with this Stephen. 
And yet that didn't stop them now, did it? In the next couple of weeks, what we will discover is that these men were out for blood. For when we look at Stephen's defense, as well as the judgment of this council, what we will see is that these men, they really didn't care about the truth, but they were only driven by their hatred for God, their hatred for Jesus. And yet in the face of such danger, it is the accused who remained calm and collected, who had the face of an angel. And why is that? Because in Christ, Stephen had been given a wisdom from the Holy Spirit that cannot be withstood by the powers of this world. And so when the opposition came, God gave to Stephen a peace that cannot be taken. And it cannot be taken because this man understood that when the gospel is proclaimed, then the truth is proclaimed. That it is irrefutable. And that no argument can stand against it. And so no matter the outcome, Stephen knew that he would please his God. We too should understand that there was a wisdom and a power in the gospel message. That we should not have to worry about the arguments that come against it because the truth is on our side. And more importantly, God is on our side. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't be unaware of the tactics of our enemy. And yet we should trust God that he has the power to overcome such tactics, should we not? And that is why we must not back down. Rather, we must stand strong and proclaim this message. Yes, the world will vehemently oppose you. And yes, they will try to slander you and bring ruin to your life. But it is not for this life that we live, is it? But for the life that is to come. And so these attacks that the world may bring, they, they cannot really hurt you, right? And that's why you, in even the most dire of circumstances, like Stephen, you too can have, have the face of an angel. Whatever that looks like. Like John Huss, Right? You could be quoting psalms and singing hymns as the, as the flames surround you. Because in Christ you have been given a wisdom from the Holy Spirit. A wisdom that cannot be withstood by any earthly power. Let us pray. Father, we come to you now knowing that that human wisdom will always fall short when compared to your wisdom. And that human power will always be inferior to your power. And yet we confess to you that even though we, we know these things to be true, we, we often find it difficult to believe that they are true. For we still struggle with the fear of man. And all too often we cave to the pressures of this world. And that is why we ask you to to make us men and women who are like Stephen, that you would give to us a wisdom from the Holy Spirit that cannot be withstood by earthly powers. Make us bold in, in the face of danger and, and give us the face of an angel when we are under duress. Lord, we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit. 
that we might proclaim your son, proclaim him to a world that is under your judgment, that, that they might repent and turn to him and find forgiveness before it's too late. May the message of the gospel be our anthem from this day forward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.